0: Why do humans love sports so much? The lower Paleolithic era took place about 100,000 years ago when Homo sapiens, how we are classified today, replaced Homo erectus. We humans went from the prey to the predator. That's when the real hunting began. Sports are not all that far removed from the rituals and excitement that the hunt brings. These are just some of the things you learn when you hang out with Dr. Bert Mandelbaum. I'm a Venice, California-born, Los Angeles-based sports fan. One that has played, coached, announced, and promoted sports my whole life. My love affair with sports started in my own backyard and has led me to this podcast. Thanks to the support of the Amateur Athletic Union in East Bay, I'm excited to bring you Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. Hello, sports historians, and welcome to the third and final installment with the award-winning author, the surgeon to the world's top athletes, and the medical advisor to the world's top sporting events, Dr. Bert Mandelbaum. In this third and final installment, Bert gets a chance to talk about his passion for swimming with sharks, his time in the Kalahari Desert doing research for his book, and a few inspirational sports diplomacy stories that he was a part of. But first, I should introduce you to my wife. That didn't sound quite right. Hmm. I should introduce you to the producer of this show, the director of the new Facebook Live at Five show, Christine Lennon. Jimbo (laughs) Technically I'm both, right?
1: Your wife (laughs) and Well, I didn't know it was more important on
0: your resume, so I wanted to. Oh, you
1: want to put it in ranking? Yeah. You went wife Mm -hmm. first. (laughs) Good. Okay. Okay, this is part three. If you missed part one or two and would like to Take a listen, you can go to sportsstoriespodcast.com. dot com mm-hmm. You can also access our social media sites there as well. I also want to tell you about Facebook live at five super fun, super fun guests and a good time where listeners and viewers can post comments mm-hmm. that go live on the screen and you get to hear some from from some really interesting guests.
0: yeah, we have a Wednesday version and a Friday version now. the Friday version um I had some of our guests and the Wednesday versions more focused on high school athletes and Olympians. And so hopefully uh, if you don't get those live, you can always get them. They're archived as posts uh, in our video section of our Facebook. I also wanted to mention my Twitter handle is at Sports Stories DL. I'm trying to do more communication on Twitter Um, And then I want to mention my blogs. They're uh, available on the website. Most recent one was about the Sullivan Awards. And now that's the world's uh, AAU Sullivan Awards is the nation's top amateur athlete award. Um, And you can get a chance to vote for that. There's a fan vote element to it. Uh, Nominees this year include Trevor Lawrence, the quarterback from Clemson, Sabrina Inescu, the basketball player from Oregon. So it's a really good field. Uh, Get in there and vote. And um, as part of that committee, I'll get an opportunity to uh, keep everybody up to speed on it. So Bert's background has been well chronicled here. He's not just a surgeon to great athletes and medical advisor to the Olympics and the World Cup, but he's also the surgeon to our two kids, Vaughn and Sienna. Vaughn tore up his knee playing volleyball for UC Santa Barbara. Sienna tore up her knee while she was in high school. Bert, as a surgeon, of course, was a pro's pro, giving all of us a confidence that we literally could not be in better hands. Both surgeries had highly successful outcomes, and Vaughn bon and Siena, like so many that have passed through Bert's life, are healed and inspired. Considering that parts one and two of this interview were the most downloaded episodes we've had on the show, I think it's time to throw it to part three with Bert. So from the Cedar Sinai Medical Building in Santa Monica, California, here is part three of my three- part interview with Dr. Bert Mandelbaum. Please note this interview was recorded March 18, 2020. You talk about passions in life that they're important, that you can follow these passions, that it continues to keep you mobile, mentally mobile too. and uh, when did so when did the thing where you started diving with the sharks start to happen?
2: Well, I, you know, as a um, high school student and as a college student, uh, I dove in my own way um, at the beach, you know, back to the beaches in Long Beach, New York. You had a jetty on both sides. Yeah. I owned the jetty. I knew everything that lived in the jetty. The sharks would come in and out. They'd eat the striped bass that were there. So I had my own way of of diving. I would spear fish. Um, (laughs) So... I, I was like that figure who who lived in the ocean. Everything is about the ocean and the organisms. So. Difference
0: between Atlantic and Pacific?
2: Very different. Um it's a it's a darker ocean than the Pacific, not as blue. Yep. Waves aren't as big. Um uh, but just as many creatures, different creatures. It's, but you
0: found a way once you're out here, um, to find your way into the ocean out in the Pacific?
2: Definitely. And yeah. uh you know, I made a commitment to myself that when I could find the time and the means of doing it, I would make it a hobby, and it's become so my that's, hobby. So that's where it came in. And and I'm very passionate about it.
0: Your former school, which, um, Cortland, asked you to come back for um, a graduation speech. And um, it seemed yeah. like you, you overdid your speech a little bit by writing a book.
2: Well, <laughs> what happened there, that's not quite the story. <laughs> But uh, it was an interesting uh, story that I got a call one February, that was 2009, from the president of the university that I really didn't know, Hmm. and uh, because I hadn't been back. Uh, I had no real contact for for years. Um, And I got a phone call, and they said, uh, you have been nominated to receive a honorary doctorate of humane letters. And I said... Right. What's that? <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> I had no idea what it was. And um, and I was in a busy clinic that day, and and I went home. I said, Ruth, you know, they, they're nominating me for this. something. I even forgot the name of what it was. And they said, oh, that sounds fun. And then we never talked about it. About three weeks later, I get a phone call. I said, well, you've been selected um, to receive the Doctorate of Humane Letters. Mm-hmm. And I had a chance to read about it and understand what it was. And myself and one other person, Ann Dunwoody, who is the first woman four-star general. Wow. And the two of us were receiving the honorary doctorate at the same time. And at the same podium, Chuck Schumer, the center of New York, would be speaking as well. Look out. So there I am. I said, okay, you know, I've gone around to give lectures about knee surgery and meniscal and ligaments and all, but now I've got to talk to 12,000 people with a senator and a former four-star, <laughs> got general, a four-star general, and i got to have some game, <laughs> so I went ahead and... And I I actually became really motivated. I'd never done anything like this before. And, and, you know, when I approached it like I do many things, I started reading about graduation speeches. But it gave me that opportunity to look at my notes that I've kept, impeccable notes throughout my career about different events and different conclusions and different things. And even in the face of Ann Dunwoody and Chuck Schumer, I gave my talk, and at the end, everybody come over to me and they said, "We loved it, we loved it." But where's your book? I don't I have a book. So I came away with the concept that okay, next goal, I got to write a book. Yeah, right. and then, and I said, "Well, there's a book that that's written that says how to write a book for dummies, maybe you know." And I went around looking for that. No. So I went on this journey of of how to. Write a book, you know. You have to write a proposal. You need an agent. You need a publisher. Yeah. You need know, all those things, and and there's a whole challenge and story around that. But consummated, as you said, in 2014 with the Win Within.
0: The um, part of the Win Within, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, humans and their evolution. Um, you talked about you went to the Kalahari Desert to as part of this research, right? To kind of um, what to get a glimpse of. What it is th- that makes us who we are physically, if in effect.
2: You know, I, 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 we mentioned it earlier, the intersection of the life of sport and the sport of life. Right. How is that? Why is it us humans think in terms of athletics? Why do we love sport? Why do we love yeah. to run? What it is... In us, that when we come to the finish line of the Boston Marathon, as I sat there in 2001, I was honored and I had the the position of being right at the finish line in the Boston Marathon, and person after person coming off that finish line, the first thing they did was they raised their hands just like that, mm-hmm. and we call the celebratory pose. And I learned at that moment that in life there's one winner but there are 14,999 victors. Hmm. And everyone had that same response when they Hmm. crossed the finish line. Hmm. And I was intrigued by what is this concept? Where does it come from? What is this athleticism that's inside of it that's burning to come out when we hit that finish line? And whether it be the end of the Boston Marathon or that individual that Special Olympics athlete, it's a celebratory pose that comes out stereotypically all the time. And I said it has to come from somewhere. And there's a population of Bushmen. Mm -hmm. They're called Kosan Bushmen that live there between South Africa and Botswana. And they've been living there for almost the whole time that Homo sapiens have existed. The Paleolithic period started about 100,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And as we became, as we came from Homo erectus, to Homo sapiens 100,000 years ago, we went from being these small hominids where we were prey, and all of a sudden we evolved to become hunter-gatherers. It was there in the southern Kalahari that we really became survivors of the fittest. And so I was intrigued to look at how and where this came from, and where it comes from is the hunt and the way the hunt starts is 5.30 in the morning as these young athletes, 13, 14, 50 year old, come with the older, and they come with their spears and their bow and arrows, and they're sharpening the edges, and the hunting party gather. And mm-hmm. there I was as the party gathers, and we head out on the hunt. The hunt is about two hours. It's a slow jog or a walk, about 12-minute miles, and never want to go too fast. It's In the desert, it's 110 degrees. You don't want to go too fast. You don't carry water. And you're headed out after the Impala. Wow. After about two hours, you get to the top of the canyon. And at this point, the anaerobic Impala can run no more. And there they are trapped at the edge of the canyon. The spears come out. The bow and arrows come out. And three Impala are killed. Immediately, they have to rehydrate. And what they do is open the chest and drink the blood. Wow. So we have to carry the carcasses back to camp. Did you, did you participate in this ceremony? Yeah. Wow. So not drinking the blood. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's okay. okay. I'll be thirsty. <laughs> I'll, I'll <Right>. Okay. <laughs> all right. So. And then you got to bring it all the way back? Bring it all the way back. Wow. And uh, and therein lies the survivor of the fittest. Mm-hmm. So if you look at it, what happened here is we go out and we learn that you can't go too fast. And it came to that last hill, what happens? As we go up that last hill, we're two hours into it, it's hot, we're sweaty, but our endorphins go off. Mm. Something inside of us drives us up that hill to make the kill. And in making the kill, we the bounty we achieve from the hunt is the food that makes us the survivors of the fittest. And for that, all these systems that exist in all of us, I don't care who you are. I have to just put a a a blinder on my eyes. I don't care who the individual is. But if I take you and I take you for a run and I do it day after day, you're going to feel better psychologically. Mm-hmm. Your blood lipids are going to go down. Your blood pressure will go down. You'll be healthier. Mm-hmm. You'll exclaim different things. You'll achieve a whole different mindset. You'll be more successful in life. And from that, we've learned that those are inherently part of us. That is our DNA. Mm -hmm. And those DNA, that is the legacy that comes from that hunter-gathering. We had talked
0: about this right around the time you just released the book. And you were telling me that. And to that point, I'd been pretty consistent with getting workouts and that kind of thing. More so, I didn't, I had an abstract reason why, just, I knew it, but that quantified it for me, and I know that I, like, really took to the next level to where I make sure I made it every day, and it's until this point where my YMCA and the yoga's been taken away that it's made my my mind work differently. Like suddenly I'm working just a little bit differently and now I have to go search those other places. And it is, it's like, it's part of our DNA to be physically active like that in order to, I think, to function our best.
2: It's part of our DNA and it's part of our genomics, we call it. And now people always want to know and they ask, what's the benefit of exercise on us? Mm -hmm. And how does it affect aging? And there's numerous literature now that show that, if we take a rat and we put them on a treadmill and they run every day, the hippocampus is larger. Hmm. If we have them run every day and we have them do agility, whatever way we do it, not only is their hippocampus the larger, but the prefrontal cortex is larger. Why is that important? Because we know that exercise is our only drug that impacts at this time, impacts life and longevity, Impacts the quality of life. And as I say, our goal in life is to add life to your years that will add years to your life.
0: The plus 10 existence.
2: The plus 10 existence, we call that. That if you could add life to your years, I will guarantee you will add years to your life.
0: So that's in in something... Roughly formula, like 15 minutes extra exercising every 10 years of your life or every decade. Yes. Something along these lines. Yes. Um, and it you, has
2: to be in different forms. Oh. It could be, you talked about yoga. Uh, yeah. Uh, and you can talk about riding a stationary bike, uh, hiking, walking, yoga, Pilates, swimming. Mm-hmm. Choose your weapon. It, it doesn't matter. But I do think that we are programmed to walk. And we're programmed to hike, mm. and that's really part of our spiritual, physical, emotional existence. Uh, but exercise, going up hills, coming down hills, however you do it—if you do it on a treadmill, if you do it on a bike, um, whatever it is—a peloton, um, do you,
0: it. You um, had to had to uh, become the patient for a while. But you had an accident, I think, um, biking. Followed by running, and, and and they came within a short amount of time, so that that had to challenge you a little bit.
2: Well, I I had I had some bad luck for a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, I had I was hit by a snowboarder, had to have back surgery. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so I I kind of changed my lifestyle. Before that, I they told me I couldn't run anymore. Okay. After that, and so I started biking. And it became like the story of Joe because over here 12th and Arizona... <laughs> so you got hit on the snowboard and
0: then you decided
2: to bike. And then, oh, gosh. Yeah, and I was, I was riding on a Father's Day a few years ago. I was riding to the office. Uh, I can't run, so I'm going to ride my bike. And this old geezer coming out of the alleyway at 12th and Arizona didn't see me on his left oh, side and man. hit me and launched me. And, and fortunately... Um, the bike was damaged, but I wasn't too damaged. So uh, I felt I felt like the, oh, it was a story of Job at that point. That that uh, I had to figure some other navigational path where I, I wasn't going to hit by snowboarders or I wasn't going to hit off my bicycle.
0: <laughs> well, and, and I would imagine it made you, um, you know, more aware as a as a doctor at that time with people wrote rehab. You you know, you intimately experienced it
2: yeah and and I think i I have this philosophy of minimizing our risks you know you you've got to be responsible focused, and everything we do we have to figure out how to maximize benefits minimizing risks in our approaches
0: big five matrix is um is it sounds that sounds similar in nature
2: yeah we we call it the big five and and it's really five things that you have to do to be successful in life that successful people always do and it starts with you are what you eat you drink, drinking mm-hmm. you are what you eat drink think and do which means you run your life by eating well and you know people come up to me and they say well what's the best way to eat you know is it intermittent fasting is it eating paleo um, how best to do that and and i think there's probably not one way it's somewhere around a mediterranean diet mm-hmm. why if you look at the top 10 longevity countries they're in, they're in fish-eating country. So mm-hmm. probably eating fish in some blend of a plant-based approach is, is a great way to go. Um, you are what you eat, drink, think, and do in, in terms of minimizing the hazards, minimizing your alcohol intake, making sure, as we said, that we exercise. Mm-hmm. Number two, we talked about hope, optimism, and passion in your mm-hmm. lives. They're all interconnected. I think that everything you approach, you need to be passionate about. You need to be hopeful, give other people hope, uh, surrounded by that. Number three is discovery and adventure. Live your life like you have something new. Maybe it's a new yoga class. Maybe it's a new climb, a new dive, a new career, uh, a new passion to run uh, sports stories with Denny Lennon. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whatever that is, be passionate about discovery and adventure. Number four relationships you've got to have your home team and the relationships of your home team you need relationships at work Mm -hmm. you need relationships around relationships relationships over time is what make people successful Mm. and number five it's about character and doing the right thing as an old friend of mine clive charles who was the olympic coach in sydney said do the right thing 100% of the time. Character counts every time, all the time. So that's what it is, the big five.
0: It's Co- to- Coach Wooden would be quite proud of you because it does. It stands up to the, you know many of his principles of his pyramid of success and what that built towards, but they're woven in there um, kind of in a different way. And, it's, and, it, and it does. It just hits home with me on a lot of those.
2: Yeah, I, I feel that for me that's part of my role is to carry on the, the wooden legacy mm-hmm. and the Big Five really indoctrinate those pieces of, in my office and in my brain, is really impacted and imprinted with the Pyramid of Success.
0: Um, I hope you don't mind if I bounce around a little bit. The Cliff uh, Meidel? Meidel. Cliff Meidel. Cliff Meidel's story. Um, there's just a few things here that are, that are, <laughs> that are so inspirational and, and, uh, I'd love to get them, get you to talk a little bit about them.
2: Cliff Meidel is one of my favorite people of all times. Um, as a 20 year old, he had been on a summer job and on an excavation site and he's working and they're excavating and he just comes up upon this power line and gets electrocuted with 50,000 volts. Wow. Heart stops. My goodness. He gets resuscitated, and the lower portion of his body is burned such that we have to do 14 operations. 14. Myself and Dr. Malcolm Lesavoy, the plastic surgeon, operate on him. And he was an amazing kid. He was from Torrance, California, brought up like everyone else on a summer job, Athletic, but not really an athlete. And at that time, exactly that time, we had another patient by the name of Tim Daggett. Gymnast. And Tim Daggett, we all know about Tim because Tim is now the face of USA Gymnastics at the Olympics for Commentary MDC. and so forth, yeah. But he won a gold medal in 1984 yeah. Yeah. for the American team as a gymnast and was part of the UCLA team. And in 1987, while competing in the World Championships in Rotterdam, coming off the vault, he breaks his leg, has a horrible injury, and it goes on to injure his blood vessels, develop a compartment syndrome, and he comes back from Rotterdam for me to take care of. And we do several operations, and that's in November of 1987. And he wants to compete in the Olympics in Korea in 1988. In so we have between November and July, and we have to be able to qualify in Salt Lake City at the trials in April. So literally, we have from November to April, that six months, that he can compete in the trials. And uh, at that time, we do everything we can to get him ready. And one of the contacts he has is with Cliff Meidel. With Meidel. And what in,
0: in in wherever your space is rehab and so forth? Yeah. They okay. they
2: come in contact with the are both active patients are rehabilitating. And Tim taught me something that I had never known before. And I said, Tim, we can't do this. It's not enough time And he looks at me and he says, Doc, you've got to learn something from me And he says, What's that? He says, You have to dare to dream and he pointed his finger at me. Wow. Well. And from that moment on, I learned the concept of daring to dream. Hmm. Dare to dream. And it resonated me in me, Jeez. and it resonated in Cliff Meidel. The same concept. And so Cliff Meidel, and that's the story we're telling, was an individual who, because of his legs, he's missing half of his knee, and they're covered with flaps, and he kind of limped a little bit. But he said, well, I can't really participate as an athlete, but I'm going to start rowing. And he became part of Outrigger Rowing Mm -hmm. Clubs and rowed and rowed, much like Forrest Gump, uh, and (laughs) rowed and rowed and rowed and rowed until he made the Olympic team. What? In 1996, he made the Olympic team for Olympic kayaking. What the heck? And he didn't have any great accolades in winning anything, no gold. But not the Paralympic Games, but the Olympic Games. Here was this handicapped individual competing in the Olympic Games in rowing, and he made the team. That was in 1996. In year 2000, at the opening ceremonies in Sydney, Sydney, He was selected to carry the Olympic flag. God. And that one moment in that one stadium, wow. I was there watching. And when he looked over, carrying that flag oh my God. and all those memories of all those 14 procedures and the concept of daring to dream came forward. Jeez, And there he was. And here's an individual who truly was not the winner. He never won gold or silver. But he was a victor, and a victor in his journey.
0: Jeez, that's intense. That is unbelievable.
2: Yeah. Great story.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: Honey, um, you think it might be time for a commercial? Vamanos a Blanca Vamanos a Blanca.
0: Casablanca Restaurant in Venice, proud sponsor of Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. So, Christine, do you know uh, much about Casablanca? The movie or the restaurant? Oh, nice. Uh, How about the movie?
1: You mean the 1943 Best Picture? Yes. By
0: Warner Brothers? Yeah, that's the one. All right. Uh, Do you know who played Elsa?
1: Elsa was played by Ingrid
0: Bergman, I believe. What? Who played Rick? The Bogue, Bogue, Humphrey (laughs) Bogart. Wow, this is amazing. Do you know much about, uh, well, do you know where the city's located? Well,
1: I think it's like a port city in North Africa, Morocco. Morocco, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: This is something different. Uh, Yeah, and how about um, the restaurant? Do you know where the restaurant's located?
1: Oh, the restaurant's one of my favorites. It's right there on Lincoln at Rose.
0: Well, um, it is. So you answered all of the questions correct, as opposed (laughs) to the last time we did this commercial with the other producer. However, uh, I want to say this. While we're closed during these uh, coronavirus times at Casablanca, they will be delivering um, packages, or you can pick up packages um, of food, and it's, it's in effect the same that we got catered at our Super Bowl party, which was legend.
1: Legendary Super Bowl party and for it's, all those it, who missed it.
0: It was something else. Like, there's a taco bar with three different meats. They got enchiladas. They got their world-famous um, tortillas. And uh, Carlos told me this. If you uh, are to mention Sports Stories with Denny Lennon, if you call him and mention Sports Stories with Denny Lennon, he'll throw in either a discount or margaritas. His number is 310- 505-5091. That's 310-505-5091. You ask Carlos for the package deal and tell him you want the SSDL discount and or margaritas. Casablanca restaurant and sports stories. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship.
1: Vamanos a Casablanca. La comida para la familia. Bama a casa blanca and now back to our sports stories interview with Dr Bert Mandelbaum.
0: um life of sport and sport of life and and when you when you said that, one of the things I thought about we also have another guest that's going to come up who um was a rear admiral in charge of NATO security in Kabul on the backside of Afghanistan and he started setting up. Uh, groups to come over to teach sport and using sports as a diplomatic kind of tool um, you 've been at the middle of that on a few different things. I think one was um, in Korea right after nine eleven
2: yeah, we had an amazing moment. It was um, the world cup and in, in two thousand two It was September eleventh We all know what happened mm-hmm. um, and we 're getting ready for the world cup and um, Part of the World Cup indoctrination was flying to New York and going to Ground Zero mm. with with the fire department survivors. Living that experience mm. was just amazing. Being in in yeah. that environment, and then we all flew uh, from New York uh, to Seoul, Korea, and we were greeted there by the 82nd Battalion, who was basically adopted us the whole time. Cool. As well as 25 other State Department and CIA agents. Okay. Uh, again, we're the first, now, the first American asset that was competing internationally. And again, when you look in harm's way, and as, as they said, I asked the question, why are you guys here? And they responded in their khaki pants and blue shirts. There's a clear and present danger. Jeez. And so we went on and uh, we arrived in Seoul, Korea. And they say it was a shark. No, Shark. <laughs> okay. 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 you be a, like, I got this. Not a clear, you guys, I got you guys this. can go home. N- not a clear and present danger. <laughs> but we arrived there. The airport was like I've never seen. There were tanks everywhere and turrets were pointing in different directions. There were Chinook helicopters all over the sky. Whoa. And we come out and we had these battalions of both American and South Korean soldiers. And we had a walk between them all the way through the airport. To the curbside where the buses were greet us, and there were four helicopters circulating at all times, following us everywhere we went. We got to training and and there the c i a had all their tools, and they were sorting out chemical issues, nuclear issues um, biologic issues. It was like a world that was i've never seen wow and uh the games went on in a in a very uncomplicated way. Uh, but for us, it really changed life for us. Yeah, uh, that we got to know our our the uh, 82nd Battalion that helped us through, that uh, brought us up to the DMZ. You got to experience that. Uh, so again, you know, for me, I, I don't speak lightly when I look at the concept of the life of sport and the sport mm-hmm. of life and how they're intersected.
0: Iran and uh, USA uh, were not on diplomatic terms. And I think it was was it World Cup that you went to in France in, in
2: nineteen ninety eight in Lyon, uh, France. We play Iran, mm-hmm. and interestingly enough, uh, no diplomatic relations. And we spent the whole day before the game arguing how we're going to present gifts to one another. <laughs> it was a very unique moment in time. And again, and that's a
0: tradition, of course, in 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 World Cup play.
2: That's right. We and and FIFA not wanting to participate in us giving flowers and gifts back and forth, spent three or four hours deciding and at first they said no and then ultimately said yes. So it was the first time of all the games that before the game we presented each other others gifts. It was a, a memorable moment. Wow. Nineteen ninety eight Lyon France World Cup.
0: You um you met two presidents that I saw. Wonder if there's more. There's probably more um <laughs> President Reagan. Yep. Would yeah. you, tell 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 how you met him.
2: Well, we had the opportunity <laughs> here in um, L.A. after his presidency in 1988. He came back to live life in Bel Air. Yeah. With Nancy, and uh, he had a ranch up there at Refugio Beach where he fell from a horse, injured his rotator cuff, and I had an opportunity to take care of him. And really. That was really uh, you treated. You treated the Gipper. Treated the Gipper and uh, it started a a long lasting uh relationship that I, I had with him wow uh from really 19 late 19 um 88 until around 93 94 when he began to uh yeah. distance himself um
0: how would you meet president clinton
2: president clinton uh interestingly enough back to world cup 2010 that 91st Minute Optimism, yeah. uh, he was there with the U.S. Oh. team uh, in South Africa, and he came down, and he, he spent a couple hours with us in, in, the, in the locker room, and I have a great photograph because when he gave a speech, uh, his finger went up, and he said, boys, the most important thing in life is always optimism. And that photograph I have of him and I with his raising his finger uh, was all about optimism. Wow. So that's how I learned that lesson.
0: What other presidents have you met?
2: That's it. Really. Oh, I thought that's you it. I was yeah. about to go. Yeah. No, no more. <laughs>
0: um, what was, uh, what happened in, it was Iraq 2004, something about, you had to fly th- through Crete or something along these lines and you were...
2: Yeah, we had in uh, the Olympics in uh, 2004 okay, Olympics. in Greece. <clears throat> I was working for IOC and FIFA. Um, interestingly enough, we're at war with Iraq, and the Olympics mm-hmm. are going on. And at that time, the Iraqi team uh, couldn't fly from Baghdad to Athens mm. or Crete. They had to go by vehicle across into uh, Syria. Okay. and then come down to Amman, Jordan, and they could fly from there. And they weren't able to bring a doctor, and they weren't able to bring any medical supplies. So they show up oh. to Heraklion, which is a small town in where the venue, the stadium was in Crete. Yeah. And so they show up with no medical equipment, no doctor. <laughs> what? And I'm the person it's who Olympics. is the venue medical director for Crete. And so what do they have? They show up they had a tough journey they have no doctor no medical equipment and what do they have Optimism. an american <laughs> american doctor who's got to take care of them and and they look at me i look at them and i said whoa this is going to be a, a really an interesting thing and they treated me extremely coldly in the beginning but one of the most amazing moments about 10 days later they played australia and they beat australia and after these games, in the Olympics, we're always doing doping and control. And there's usually a few people left from the respective teams. So there it was, myself and the Iraqi team. Uh, and it was just at this time two players, an administrator, and a doctor. And we're the only people in the van. And they were so excited, they began to sing and clap in the van at 1 o'clock in the morning as we're driving through the Greek countryside. And I started clapping and singing with them. Oh, man. And here it was, an amazing Olympic moment two countries at war. Yeah. It's about competition, and we're singing and clapping, exclaiming the victory. So that oh, was an amazing that is Olympic un- moment.: You
0: compared that with what was so disappointing as a youngster, and I had such idealism about the Olympics, still do, but our boycott in 80 and subsequent boycotts in '84, and it was, that's the one place where you can see, you know, these citizens from those parts of the world that will compete and honor.
2: And that that's really what the Olympic spirit is about. You know, sure it the is. Olympic spirit is about learning that it's process over outcome. Learning that it's it's taking part rather than the win. That it's the journey over the destination. Yeah. And if there's something that we really want to convey to all of us Especially now, are those mm-hmm. basic principles as we go through this crisis at the moment?
0: I, um, if you don't mind, I got a couple of things. Um, epigenetics. Um, can you explain that a little bit? It seems like one thing I've <clears throat> always admired about you, whether it's that innovations in technology or data sets or genetic mapping or artificial intelligence, you always seem to um, adapt and then somehow you move to the front of the, the pack and being able to um, help the rest of us understand it.
2: Epigenetics is, is a fascinating field, been around since the 60s. Mm. You know, as we, we know about Watson and Crick and describe the genome. And well, we basically have these 23 chromosomes, mm-hmm. and then we have the ability to repair and impact these genes over time. You could injure the genes with chemicals and radiation, or you could enhance those genes um, by uh, hormeism, it's called. Hormeism, okay. Hormeism is, is the concept of, of the changes that go on in our body that positively influence the genes hmm. through epigenetic pathways. And what that means, it's turning on these genes, these hormones that exist, are called sirtuins, S-I-R-T-U-I-N-S. And these are the products of epigenetics that turn on certain genes preferentially. Back to those rats that are running on that treadmill Mm. and the brains Mm -hmm. are getting bigger and stronger Mm -hmm. and our hearts are becoming cleaner, devoid of lipids and cholesterol. It's all in the epigenetics that are influenced by the exercise. Turning on the right genes having the, the players and the cells and the growth factors all in place so that when we turn on those genes, we get the positive benefit. And that's really where we're focused now in understanding how we could affect the genome in a positive way. Okay. And scientists are understanding these processes, which genes can do what and how, and also splicing out other genes And again, that's that genetic engineering that we're seeing as some of these big innovations going forward. But the epigenetics are are basic because back to you are, what you eat, drink, think, and do, in and of itself, no big technology, you in fact can influence your epigenetics through this concept that we call hormeism.
0: uh, um, Newer technology as it's going to assist you... And what was your, you know, traditional job of knee repair or replacement and the like? I think I heard you talking about how it can really <clears throat> specify how you might either replace a knee, hip, what have you, robotics.
2: Yeah, we're in a time of of fantastic innovation here, and it's it's really interesting. We're we're dealing with this, the challenges of this crisis. At the same time, there's so many great innovations right now. We have robotics, 3D printing. Uh, We have artificial intelligence, uh, big data sets being evaluated, and now regenerative medicine and orthobiologics. All of these things going off and all relating to our ability to add resistors to that one semiconductor and allow it to compute at greater and greater exponential rates, what we call Moore's Law. And so we're seeing all this technology that's floridly developing around us uh, that is really taking us to the new levels. And again, just a few weeks talking about this and the importance of this in relationship to human beings in a humble way right now. We're humbled Mm. by that. Mm -hmm. Even though we have these computers, these technologies, semiconductors, these resistors, we're humbled, taken to our knees by a virus. Wow.
0: I always, whenever I talk to you, I'm both inspired and ready to do great things and exhausted. My (laughs) brain never works so hard. Don't worry. I got some dumb stuff coming up. (laughs) But I got a couple uh, hard questions for you and then some easy ones. Good. Good. Most impressive athlete you've been around. Told you these were going to be difficult.
2: You know, for me, the most impressive athlete... Uh, I've been around, um, it's hard to say the most impressive because there are so many mm, impressive athletes who have impressed me <coughs> with their abilities. But people like David Beckham, uh, who who in many ways was a wizard. Obviously, the women know him as a wizard of <laughs> of his ability to... Uh, Woo. Woo everybody and is uh, on camera, off camera, Mm -hmm. uh, and spice and the like. Um, uh, Tiger Woods, Mm. uh, for me, uh, was is just beyond understanding. I was asked to follow him around at Riviera some twelve or thirteen years ago. Yeah, six ten in the morning. I'm on the on the on the practice green and uh, he's hitting one after another from 15 feet in the hole. It was amazing. It was almost robotic how he can do that. Mm -hmm. And then something happened as the fog rolled over. Uh, The caddy brought him into about 10 feet, and he sat there, put three balls in front of him, and put his left hand over his eye, his left eye. And As he hit the ball, you saw him count one, two, and after one, two, he looks up, and he rims the top of the hole. Next ball. Hits the ball. One, two, looks up. He rims the top of the hole. Third ball. One, two, rims the top of the hole. Tiger Woods was teaching himself the imagery of the edge of the hole. He wasn't learning how to hit the ball in the hole. It was like a basketball player just hitting the rim or a soccer player hitting the Jeez. post. It was like I've never seen before. He was teaching himself the negative imagery. Wow. Now, that in and of itself, what the if, if that's not a superstar or someone who has these incredible powers, to even think about that, let alone Jeez. practice that, for <laughs> me, it was amazing to see.
0: Um, <clears throat> he, one time I went to go watch a golf clinic in Orlando, <clears throat> and he was hitting balls, and he said, I think Buick was a sponsor, so there's an open driver's window, and there's a big tree right in the middle. And he goes, "Let's." And there's the car over here, car over both sides. And he said, "Let's take the ball around the and go." And he would put it in the window, 200 yards out, and then he would go this way around it.
2: <laughs> I went, "Incredible!" What's,
0: what, wait, what's going on? <laughs> like, yeah, that guy. Um, how about most uh, impressive coach?
2: You know, I I and they say
0: impressive for a reason, because as others I ask different questions, but you, I am always interested in what impresses you, inspires.
2: I, I have to say, Coach Wooden. Mm. Um, I you know, again, there are a lot of great coaches I have been around um, um, who have taught me a number of great things, but mm-hmm. I think Co- Coach Wooden is really yeah. in rarefied earth and air uh, in terms of his ability to. Uh, With poetry, with philosophy, with dictums, with mandates. (laughs) Uh, So powerful on so many different human levels.
0: Uh, You got a team that impressed you that worked together particularly well? Find, tune the machine.
2: Yeah, you know, there are so many great teams. You know, you go back, uh, you've learned from the New York Knicks of the 60s. Mm. Dave Bradley, Monroe, (laughs) DeBuscher. Reed, uh, Phil what Jackson I lo- coming uh, off the bench. Phil Jackson coming off the bench. Mm-hmm. What I loved about that team is, is, and I love about any team that could function as a team mm. that really are trying to not shine on themselves, their own ego. We look for those characteristics in our, mm-hmm. in our icons today, and I, we don't see it. One of the problems today is that we don't have iconic individuals that we can look and say, I love that team. Mm. Because they're unselfish, they want to work together. There's nothing about I. There is no I in team.
0: Mm. You have a, you mentioned that play in the World Cup. Is there a play, one particular play that sticks out in your mind?
2: Yeah, mm. um, I think for me right now it's Tiger Woods winning the, winning the Masters last year, hitting that uh, he's down, uh, fourteen holes and mm-hmm. he hits that last putt. Uh, for me, that was, I don't think I've been more electrified by one play. Uh, that one ball and the ending of that, and as he hit that ball into the hole, what he did with his arms went up, and in slow motion, yeah. the celebratory pose went up. It's something else. And you, you just saw <coughs> his whole life from his wife to his kids to his problem with his all of opioids it. to his problem with that arrest video. And to see all that the surgeries he went through, all the surgeries he went through, and, and to realize that this iconic athlete is an iconic human being. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's just that one hole, that one moment really showed that. All um, right.
0: <clears throat> Get ready, Bert. <laughs> We're going to dumb it down a little with some TV show questions. Choose one of the following three as a show, uh, your favorite show. Quincy, MD. Jack Klugman, remember? Mm-hmm. Emergency, mm-hmm. or Shark Week? Shark Week. Okay, <laughs> understood. Easy. Well, let's try this. <laughs> let's do another one. Um, okay. Choose one: ER, mm-hmm. General Hospital, mm-hmm. or Shark Week?
2: Shark Week. Okay. All right. All right. All right. You get so the pattern. This is going to get a little tougher right now. <laughs>
0: Sharknado. Who? Shark Tank. Uh huh. Or Shark Week.
2: Shark Week. Oh,
0: <laughs> man. All right. So we're going to close out our TV show you, questions. You, you, know,
2: you, you know your, your <clears throat> yeah. guest.
0: Which show, which show jumped the shark the worst? All right. <laughs> was it the Brady Bunch when they brought around Cousin Oliver? Was it the Flintstones when they brought over Kazoo? Or was it actually Happy Days when Fonzie threw on his skis and literally jumped over the shark?
2: I think it was Fonz. Very good, you passed that easily. <laughs> All right, here comes some rapid fire
0: for you, Bert. You ready? Yeah. What was the first pet you had? Uh,
2: first pet was a um, was a dog, an Airedale dog. Name named
0: Chips. Chips. First car,
2: Mustang Ford. Ooh, burned more oil than it did gas.
0: <laughs> Favorite sports team as a kid,
2: um, the uh, New York Yankees.
0: Okay. Yeah. Nickname as a kid.
2: Uh, it was TREB.
0: TREB? Where'd
2: that come from? Just for playing with the letters. <laughs> T-R-E-B.
0: Okay. Oh, B-E-R-T. I thought you were playing with the treble and in no. the place. Uh, favorite board game?
2: Uh, favorite board game has to come down to Scrabble.
0: Mm. Favorite main dish?
2: Maine, as in the state? Lobster. No, no, no. <laughs> first, that's a good, that's a first answer. Now, your favorite uh, main
0: entree here. Yeah, I, I would still say lobster. You say lobster? Fair yeah. enough. Um, favorite dessert?
2: Um, my favorite dessert has to be carrot cake.
0: Mm. Favorite movie? Uh,
2: favorite movie is uh, Jimmy Stewart, What a Wonderful Life, mm. Frank Capra.
0: Mm-hmm. Favorite musical group?
2: It uh, has to go to be the Beatles. Yeah. Favorite author? Uh, favorite author goes right back to John Wooden.
0: Mm, solid. Favorite professional athlete?
2: Favorite professional athlete is and I'll answer this in a very simple way, are all the professional athletes?
0: <laughs> hmm. well, um I think I know this answer, but let's call let's say this. Where specifically did you meet your wife?
2: In the A-level of uh, the CHS building at UCLA. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. What was
0: your first date?
2: Uh, It was in the hallway uh, in the basement of UCLA. (laughs) All right. And um,
0: what's your favorite quote? Uh,
2: My favorite quote is, um, my very favorite quote is, is from John Fitzgerald Kennedy mm-hmm. It's not about what your country can do for you. Mm. It's what you can do for your country mm-hmm. and And I think in those words, that the legacy of JFK really has impacted people like myself mm-hmm. because it's that empowerment that we have to always remember that if we lose that as human beings to empower the individual to be the best they can, Mm -hmm. to challenge them, to challenge what they're doing, to look into their own eyes, to look into their own lives, and really develop their own mission, their own vision, their own plan, their purpose in life really comes from that one quote, that one moment. Mm. And then from that one quote came and it changed human life through his quote at Rice University mm-hmm. when he said in 1961 that we are going to put a man to the moon and have him come back safely <laughs> by the end of the decade and when he passed away in 1963 he had no knowledge what a lunar excursion module would be nope. how to go about doing that the discovery and adventure of and the teamwork and the steps of the Mercury missions of the Gemini missions and the Apollo both successes and failures and to reach that July ninth, 1969 and to reach the moon in that way as Neil Armstrong stepped on is like none other
0: like none other Um, speaking of none other you know um, as impressive of a person as you are and it's inspired by you I have to my most heartfelt feelings really revolve around my children and knowing that both of them came to you injured and then have gone on to lead these lives that allow them you know to do great things because you fixed them and we're not the only ones there's all of these people you've touched personally and also philosophically and by extension Um, but it's with great gratitude I say thank you for doing the interview today and I say thank you for being you and helping my family Mm.
2: I have one more important quote Please. That we'll end with, if I may. Please. And it was a quote by my, my favorite of all time, JFK. Mm-hmm. And he said that the word, the Chinese word for crisis is two strokes. One is for danger and one is for opportunity. So out of crisis, yes, it's dangerous, But out of the crisis comes the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And for us today, we have to look at the opportunities that come from this adversity. Mm -hmm. Danger and opportunity. And with that, have a great evening. (laughs) I love it. Thank you, Bert. (laughs) My pleasure. Thanks, Bert. Now it's time for an installment
0: of As Time Goes By, where we get to know Carlos Haro, Jr. of Casablanca Restaurant in Venice, one minute at a time. Now let's play it again with Carlos Jr. We're moving on to uh, St. Mark and Venice trivia. Uh-huh. Uh, Venice being home to Casablanca, yes, right, uh, and St. Mark being the place where you and I met, right. Mm-hmm. Okay, pivotal time in your life. Yes. Oh, okay. All right. So Venice was originally called Venice of America, and it was founded in 1905 by who? Abby Kitty Nailed it. Yes. Casablanca Restaurant is located on the corner of Lincoln Boulevard and Rose Avenue in Venice. Okay. Who was Lincoln Boulevard named after?
1: <laughs> Lincoln
0: after uh, President Lincoln. Very good. Oh, these are, Way to these go. Give me really hard one. Okay. Ones. Who was Rose Avenue named after?
1: After my grandma Rose? No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> it's, after, a, it's
0: a flower. It's a flower. It's not overthink this. No. Actually, I think it is maybe named after a flower, but there was also – the Fox Rosemary Theater that was on the original Ocean Park Pier. And oh, okay. I think they named a rose to get the, the, the to that. Oh, okay. I, I, think, I think that's That would true. make the most logical sense because yeah. we can never <laughs> figure out why. But I, I, I know I wanted to just say, just not overthink it, Carlos. Okay. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon is supported by the AAU. Find a local event and join at aausports.org. And remember, you can catch your favorite amateur sports live stream, replays, and highlights at ballertv.com. Sports Stories, along with East Bay, supports the Heroes Movement, a nonprofit that bridges the gap from mental or physical therapy to getting strong again through strength and conditioning workouts. This free service is available for any veteran of the United States Armed Forces. Visit heroesmovementusa.org for more information. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon is a production of Sports Stories, Inc., and is available on Apple Podcasts and YouTube or wherever you listen and watch. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. It really helps spread the word. You can find all our social media links, archives, and other info on our website at sportsstoriespodcast.com. Special thanks to the John R. Wooden Course and Wooden's Wisdom. Original music for Sports Stories is courtesy of Lennon Music Productions. Original images by Sienna Lennon Photography. Sports Stories is produced by Marley Rice edited by Bob McCall, and researched by Teresa Dolan. Additional staff include Christine Jimbo, Jake Downey, Ray Castro, and Buck Magic Lennon. When I'm
1: bored, and I've got nothing left to do but frighten little ones, I go watch sports stories with Denny Lennon, and then I feel rejuvenated. Then I can go and scare everyone. Because that's
2: what I do, you know. Check it out, book!